Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we will be going over an article that Jeff published at Alhambra Investments. He's the head of global research at Alhambra Investments. Jeff, you posted it on the date that is escaping me, but it will not. There it is. The 21st of June, 2022 in the title. For those that want to read along, the everything data's verdict, not inflation, only more of the same. We're going to be talking about the Z1 report. We're going to dive into it. But first, tell people at the end of this episode, what thesis are they going to opine on? What is your thesis? What are you conveying to the audience with this report? Well, for the last couple of years, all we've heard is money printing, inflation, reckless abandoned spending, monetizing debt, whatever it is. Federal Reserve, federal government gone nuts. And therefore, the consumer price index and the consumer price acceleration that we've seen in the real economy, those two things must be related. It must be inflation because the Fed went crazy. The federal government went crazy. And if that was true, then we would expect to see that not just in consumer price indices, because there's different reasons why consumer prices can go up. But if it was true, genuine monetary inflation, to use your term, Emil, I'm already gagging doing it, but to use your term, then we would expect to see it in whatever money, money data, money aggregates, whatever we have available. If this was true, if the Fed had gone crazy and printed a bunch of money or the Fed, you know, monetizing debt from the federal government, then we should be able to clearly see a very large difference in the behavior of the monetary system, the credit system worldwide. And the answer is we don't. At the beginning of this article, and people can see it on the screen right now, you included right at the front an artwork piece by David Parkins, our illustrator of the euro dollar as a black hole. Let's see if at the end of the show, people can figure out why. What message were you trying to convey? We'll see. Okay, Jeff, Z1. First, let's define that. What is the Z1 report for the United States? It is, well, it used to be called the flow of funds. Today, it's called the Financial Accounts of the United States. It's uh, prepared and tabulated and reported by the Federal Reserve. It is compiled from call reports that the Fed gets from various sources because the Fed is allowed to tell you, allowed to say to you and demand from you actual data about what's going on. It's, it's compiled and it's updated quarterly. And it's about the most comprehensive picture of the entire financial system for the United States as there is available. And there's a really, there's massive amounts of detail as well as a huge comprehensive set of data set here. The, there are lots of graphs in here, Jeff. Is there one that you want us to start out with? Perhaps the layer cake that shows the various forms of money, we could call them? Yeah, let's start from the top down. Let's start with the most comprehensive view of the credit system that we have, which is the layer cake, as you call it which is essentially there are different ways to get credit and money moving into the economy. There's lending through banking. There's also firms who can sell securities or bonds and other types of uh, debt instruments throughout the economy. There's various different participants. There's also there's not just banking and financial firms. There's also non-financial firms. And this Z1 report tries to capture as much of all of those as is humanly possible. And from that data, from that very high level data, this chart that we're showing you here is basically all the debt, all the credit, all the bonds and securities that are flowing throughout the United States, the U.S. economy. Remember, this is domestically focused, just the U.S. 
all the loans in green, all the securities and credit in blue. What you see is, I think quite clearly, quite, I mean, it just smacks you in the middle of the face. There was a trend change, a definitive trend change around the first quarter of 2008, and it has never been the same since. So the first thing we're saying is from the biggest, widest view we can possibly have of the global or the U.S. financial system, what we see is parabolic growth and then, yes, growth, but it's very, very different since 2008. Now, if I zoom in on the far right of that chart, maybe I'm a little bit encouraged because from about 2008 to 2020, it was this steady, meek growth that compared very poorly to what we saw before 2008. And some people may say, well, before 2008, it was all a credit bubble and insanity. Yeah, at some point it morphed into credit bubble and insanity, but this graph goes all the way back to the 80s. And if we could go back even further, I bet you we would see something similar that we are on a certain path. Some of it was ridiculous. Okay, but even if we ignore that enthusiasm in the last, in the early 2000s, we're clearly nowhere near that trend. But in the late 2020, 2021, 2022, there's a little bit of a pickup, Jeff. Exciting, unless we go to your next graph, which that little pickup is disappearing. First of all, there's two things there. Yes, it disappeared. But number one, it, yes, you can see it visually. But in terms of actual scale, it's a drop in the bucket. It's a fluctuation. It's really not that much. And I know people think, well, that's multi-trillion. How can that not be that much? Because we're talking about a credit system that domestically speaking is, you know, we're getting up to 90 trillion. So a couple trillion here and there is sort of a market fluctuation or a rounding error. It wasn't as bad. It wasn't as slow and flat as it had been, but it really wasn't a meaningful categorical difference by any aspect. And then, of course, what it actually was, that was nothing more than the CARES Act. That was the federal government deciding that, hey, we shut everything down. We locked everything because we're overreacting to the pandemic. So let's let's do what the Keynesians tell us to do. Let's do what some of the MMT people want us to do, which is the federal government to, to literally go nuts. In, in any respect of comparison with the federal government's prior activities, it was a gigantic intervention, but in terms of perspective of the overall financial system, it truly wasn't. And here is the key, the key thing here. Stimulus is supposed to stimulate, which means that it doesn't have a temporary one-time effect. It's supposed to lead to a virtuous circle, you know, John Maynard Keene's animal spirits, where the government does something, everybody gets happy, including the banking system. And then everybody starts doing more and more things. They do things differently than they had done beforehand. So the trend between 2008 and 2020, it was changed only for that little market fluctuation of the federal government. But the underlying credit system, the underlying banking system, not a single change, nothing, absolutely zero change. You can't see anything about 2020. And if the only thing that changed was a federal one-time federal government intervention, a fiscal deficit, that is not a categorical difference in money and credit. It is only a temporary imposition of a bunch of lunatic politicians. Jeff, eventually we're going to get to an important section here, rest of world assets. 
Before we get to that, is there anything else that you wanted to cover? I see another graph here of Bitcoin, perhaps. Anything before we get to the rest of world assets? I think the other thing is the year-over-year -year percent changes because that really shows it very well, too. And the other part... That we, we were just showing that while you were talking because that shows exactly... <laughs> See, I don't even pay attention here. Yeah, it's, it shows what it looks like without the government intervention. You, it's still on that same trend since 2008, which is meek compared to everything else. And so the only thing I want to point out about that is it's not just about the federal government. It's also about the other thing that people always point to and say the Fed has gone crazy. The Fed has printed money. And what you see is that credit growth before 2008, before anybody in America had ever heard the term quantitative easing, there were no bank reserves. The Fed was out of the business before 2008. No Fed, lots of credit growth. When you say no bank reserves, you mean effectively no bank reserves. There were bank reserves. There were, you know, about yeah. eight to 10, maybe 12, 12 to 15, at the, 15 billion at the high end. But we're talking about a credit system that is tens sure. of trillions. So a couple billion in bank reserves isn't even a drop in the bucket. It's you can't even see it in the bucket. So the Fed was not creating the credit bubble of the middle 2000s. The credit system was doing it all by itself. The Fed wasn't even involved. So we had massive parabolic sustained credit and money growth up until 2008, no QE, no bank reserve. Since 2008, repeated QE, trillions in bank reserves and no credit growth. Yes, absolute terms, credit is higher than it was in 2008, but it is a, such a clear paradigm shift and it's entirely inconsistent with the idea that the Fed has printed anything other than laundromat tokens. It has not printed money, it has not created credit, because the banking system is unequivocally telling you since 2008, nothing has changed. It has been in the same disinflationary, deflationary, low liquidity state that it has always been. And it doesn't matter what the Fed or the federal government has done over those almost 15 years now. The Fed is central to sizzle, not steak, to the bark, not the actual bite. The the style, the narrative, that's what they're central to, not substance. It's the banking system, as that graph was showing, that was doing all the heavy lifting. And despite, as you say, all the central banks coming in, nothing, nothing. It's the, it's the private banks that say risk too great for the possible return. Therefore, we're going to keep it safe and extend only to the safest possible clients, not to the wider economy. Rest of world assets, financial accounts of the U.S., Z1. You've got some data going all the way back into the back of time, Jeff. How far back? The 1950s. What are we looking at? Almost all the way to the beginning of the euro dollar system, if you believe it or not. I mean, that's, that's how good the data is. Um, it's not, again, it's, it's not fully comprehensive, but it's the best that we probably have available at least in public. There's private sources of data that I would just love to get my hands on, but I've lost all hope of ever being able to do so. Well, if our audience grows a little bit more, Jeff, I'm sure we'll be able to get a hold of that data eventually. Maybe, maybe. Okay. We can, a girl can dream. <laughs> all right. Um, go on. Tell us about this graph. What should we, what should we take away here? 
This is the most important part of the Z1 data and is probably the least appreciated because I don't think most people are aware and they certainly don't appreciate the fact that much of the credit that comes into that's used inside internally domestically in the United States originates from the outside. That's what rest of world means. It's the amount of loans and securities and credit in all forms that the other parts of the world are lending into the United States. And so just like the tick data, this is a proxy of the stuff we don't see and we can't see. So there are banks and people and firms and entities outside the U.S. in the euro dollar system who are lending tons of credit and money into the U.S. There are firms in the U.S. who are lending tons of credit and money outside the U.S. And then there's the part we never see, which is the lending of tons of credit and money from outside the U.S. to outside the U.S. And that's the part we don't see in tick. That's the part we don't see anywhere. So what we're doing here, number one, we're, we're first of all, we're appreciating the fact that the rest of the world had become the marginal source of credit in the United States throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and today. Again, I don't think most people appreciate it. That's how important the euro dollar system had been. It's not like there's an, a separate euro dollar system and a separate domestic system. The euro dollar system is the system. And that's represented by how much of this that's accounted for outside the United States is responsible for credit and money activity in the United States. And what it tells us too, we're reasonably, we think, we hope, inferring that if whatever's going on from the rest of the world to the United States, that's probably doing the same thing rest of the world to rest of the world. So the part we can't see, we're sort of inferring from the parts we can see. So if we're seeing rest of the world go bananas, lending money and credit into the United States, it's a pretty reasonable assumption, and not just by this alone, but putting it together with other data and market pieces, that the rest of the world is likely going bananas to an even greater extent across the rest of the world. So this is a big thing here. And the chart that we're showing you about rest of the world, which is on a logarithmic scale, so you can really see it here, is that you see essentially three phases of the euro dollar system's contribution to the domestic money and credit system, thereby inferring its contribution to the overall euro dollar system. And these three phases are striking in each of their own sense and each of their own attributes. Uh, do, well, I guess we, they're self-explanatory, right? There is a tremendous increase early on then a moderation where it was a steady state, but still fantastic growth. And then, of course, since 2008, still positive, which is another point that we often bring up during the show. Just because it's a positive number doesn't mean it's good. We've been conditioned to think if it's below zero, then it's bad, a recession. But I think once we get into something like a depression, if we have dreadful positive numbers and they never get much beyond I don't know, let's say 2% in the wider economy, whatever measure here, then that's worse. For example, Japan, of course, they've now they're working on their fourth lost decade and they've had growth, but it's been pathetic and measly. So Jeff, we see growth in the system, not good enough. Yes, not enough growth is contraction. It is contraction. We live in a nonlinear world and those things are 
ironclad law of compounding number. And the just to wrap this thing up and put it all together, rest of the world, most important part of all the data, most important part of the global monetary system. What do you see in the third phase? What we labeled here, I love your term, Emil, but I think people need to know your term, silent depression. You coined that a long time ago. I think that's an absolutely appropriate description of the last 15 years. And our major point since 2008, which was a global dollar shortage, not a but not about subprime mortgages. Ever since then, no matter what the Federal Reserve has done, no matter what the ECB has done, no matter what the federal government has done at any level, in any way, in any shape or form, that line has not changed. That trend has not changed. And most important of all, you see absolutely nothing of 2020 on this rest of the world number. So while the U.S. federal government did go insane, and while the Federal Reserve, by the way, let's, let's talk about that for a second. The Federal Reserve, in its janitor role after March 2020, invented some new schemes so that we wouldn't have the same level of dollar shortage outside the United States. There was the overseas dollar swaps that were sort of reworked and reoriented and something called FEMA, F-I-M-A, which was a scheme to let uh, foreigners be able to sort of, sort of quasi-repo their treasuries so they wouldn't clog up the domestic repo market or clog up dealer balance sheets. Did that have any effect on the rest of the world? Obviously, it didn't. The rest of the world is still in its same silent depression post-2008 rut, regardless of anything that's happened, Fed or federal government. That's really our message here. No matter what has happened along the way, there has been no money printed. This is not genuine inflation. And it must, and if consumer prices are rising, as they obviously have been, it cannot be for that reason. It has to be something else other than actual inflation. It's the most comprehensive data set that we have available about the biggest, most crucial aspect of money and credit around the world in the data and evidence is unequivocal here. Nothing changed in 2020. And that's the bad part. That's the problem. (laughs) For future historians that are watching this show, economic historians, they may be wondering, well, why is it called the silent depression? I call it the silent depression going off the mental puzzle of if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Similarly, if the economic depression takes place, but economists, technocrats, central bankers, and the financial media don't admit to it, don't mention it, is it a depression? Well, yes, it is. It's just silent. 